Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Happy New Year, everyone. Let this year be gracious when it comes to fulfilling your dreams and goals. I hope you had amazing holidays and you are charged to go and achieve those dreams and goals because it has to be you who will go after them. So let the 2016 be all about you guys. You must wonder by now, why is he not starting to ask for those iTunes reviews? Did he abandon his passion for them? No, I did not. Those reviews helped me a lot to understand how do you like the podcast. And while all positive so far, time to time you give me some hints what can be improved, like the audio quality or the pretentiousness. Anyhow, guess what happened? Remember my goal to get 50 iTunes reviews by end of 2015? Well, we did it. Actually, we got 60 reviews worldwide. This is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you with all my heart. I know you donated me your personal spare time you could otherwise spend on uh, watching your favorite TV show, reading some exciting book or snacking. (laughs) So one more time, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. I'll be honest with you. When I started this challenge, I set the bar high because I secretly hoped we will never get there and I would not have to think about professional espresso gear. You know, I thought I would Never get 50 reviews, so I should just chill and focus on things I'm good at. Roasting, cupping and coffee business. Forget espresso. Well, you proved me wrong. (laughs) We got those reviews. Now I have to start to look for the right equipment. Uh (laughs) But I hope you help me. You can start right now. Let me know where do you get your espresso gear. Any good deals around? I'm okay with refurbished or used unit, as I need it only for my mini lab. Let me know. Let me know via valerian at coffeeis.me email or you can let me know via our Facebook group coffeeis.me or any way you can reach me. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping me out. So what's next? You, of course. <laughs> One of you is going to win the big prize. Six month coffee courses membership, three coffees from my European business green plantation coffee and one mystery coffee. Yes, I'm still keeping it a mystery, but no worries. Soon you will learn more about this. I will select the winner in the next episode of my podcast and I will announce her or him in uh, our Facebook group, coffees.me, in my Instagram, Valerian Coffee, and on our website. The winner is going to have two weeks to claim the prize, otherwise I will have to select another winner. Good luck everyone! And finally, in this episode and the next episode, I will talk to Rodolfo Rufati. Rodolfo imports coffee from El Salvador to Europe. His family has a washing mill where Rodolfo spends part of the year monitoring the harvest and processing. The next part of the year he spends in Europe working with roasters. Isn't that a dream of every coffee nerd? (laughs) He works also with us, Green Plantation. We bought some coffee from him, so this is just a small disclaimer. But there is no uh, business relation between this podcast and our coffee we bought for Green Plantation. Personally, I just fall in love with this model and I'm excited to share Rodolfo's story here on this podcast. When I was recording this podcast, Rodolfo was in El Salvador and you will have a chance to hear a bang, a great tropical storm, which will take us for a moment to the origin. Well, have a great listen. Hey, Rodolfo, que tal? Welcome in Coffees.me podcast. Uh, Hello, Valerian. Thanks for having me. You are more than welcome. Uh, You know, I found you on our Coffees.me group when you kind of started to discuss the importing issues with Jean, our previous uh, guest. Mm-hmm. And uh, your story is very interesting. And actually, uh, we started to talk on Facebook and uh, we actually bought coffee from you. Is that right? Yep, yep. Yep, yep. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just love your story because uh, as far as I know, and you can correct me and you can f- finish me, uh, not me, but <laughs> the sentence, is that you are representing your families in El Salvador, coffee uh, growing families, and you're representing them in Europe and you're importing their coffee. 
Is, is that correct? How does this work? Uh, well, it, it, it's sort of like that. Uh, I, I actually, I started working with uh, small producers uh, because uh, basically we like our family has a mill in El Salvador and, you know, they were doing like traditional washed coffees. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I came in, I wanted to do honeys, natural, start experimenting. And they thought it was a big risk to, to like to do it with like the big farms that already had clients and stuff. So, and I also thought, you know, um, it's interesting to put a focus on small producers because uh, usually like really small lots get blended into like a bigger lot and they become anonymous. So I started looking for small producers to work with and I started doing experiments, buying cherry from them and experimenting with the with processing. So I actually started more with small producers And then, like, now, you know, it just made sense to also, like, buy coffee from my family. But uh, it's, not, it's not like I represent them. Um, I act as an importer who buys coffees from them. Okay. So, but you're buying only coffee from El Salvador, right? You don't venture out to other places. Uh, well, for, for now, my idea is that um, I see myself as a coffee miller. So I, I want to be like directly involved in all the coffees I sell. So, uh, for example, last year, um, all the coffees I brought to Europe, except for one, uh, you know, I, I visited the farms. I asked them how to harvest it and we bought the cherries and I processed it at my family's mill. So I did the, the wet milling and the dry milling and only one coffee I bought it in parchment because this guy he's got a great micro mill he's making honey pacamadas mm -hmm. so i bought the parchment and then we did the dry milling like the dehulling and cleaning out defects at our mill so I, i don't really want to be like just another importer i want to be involved in creating coffees so if i start going into another country i would like to partner up with local producers and maybe help them out with processing and then uh, sell the coffees together. That sounds great. And that part of the story really like uh, impressed me. I can thank El Salvador a lot because the first time I had a chance to try the same coffee processed three different ways was uh, from uh, Emilio Lopez's farm, um, Finca El Manzano. So that was, that was really cool, you know, because nobody else did this before. So I'm, I'm very excited that nowadays a lot of, especially small farmers, do take the risk and they kind of play with their coffee and try to create different uh, flavor profiles. So, so I really love that. How, how do you spend your time? Because I know, and you know, we heard that big bang. So I guess that was a, a, a storm in El Salvador. It's pretty cool <laughs> to keep it in a podcast. So I know that you spend some time in, in El Salvador and sometimes in, in Europe. Yes. Uh, so, um, I come back for harvest season, so I, I don't really get involved in the farming. Uh, I like the milling side. So I get here, uh, a few, like, let's say a few weeks before harvest to be able to visit the farms. And then I'm here for most of the harvest. And then I go to Europe and I start selling coffees over there. Wow. That's a dream come true for a lot of uh, coffee professionals. Hmm. spending part uh, time on, on, on the farm or in origin and then coming back to Europe and having fun. That's great. Yeah, it's nice. What is your coffee story? When did you start to work with coffee? And uh, if you remember, what was your first cup of coffee? Okay. Um, well, I think uh, both my mom's and my dad's families have been in coffee for, let's say, like 100 years at least. And uh, so we've been cultivating coffee and Both my father's father and my mother's father, they were both uh, coffee millers. So they both had a mill and an exporting company. And uh, like for me, it kind of started as, um, like, I guess my, my dad always worked in coffee and he has his farm. So like on Saturday mornings, uh, I would go with him to the farm. And so, I don't know, gr growing up, it was more... Like, I guess I saw it from the 80s commodity style where uh, my dad was 
working for a big uh, coffee exporting company that had mills all over Latin America. And the whole idea was basically to produce coffee so you can sell contracts on the commodities market and trade contracts. So it wasn't really something that interests me until I, I was uh, living in Europe and I started seeing all these specialty coffee shops and, you know, how like coffee was appreciated as a unique product, mm-hmm. all this interest on processing and varieties. That's sort of what sparked the, you know, the idea of getting back into it for me. Oh. So I guess uh, that's how it happened. Yeah, that's cool because that's what happened with me. I mean, I... You know, I am in coffee since 2001 and uh, we did this kind of like, as you said, this kind of commodity coffee, but marked as, I don't know, Brasilia Santos or El Salvador, strictly high grown, stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, kind of got boring. <laughs> and in 2012, I discovered the specialty world and I was like, wow, this is really awesome with all these experiments, with all these lots, with these, all these contacts with, with the farm, you know, that 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 kind of. Uh, put a new spark into me so yeah it's a similar story mm-hmm. it's cool uh, so why did you decide because of your st- lifestyle you, you could basically do do it everywhere you can spend some time in El Salvador you can go somewhere else so why did you decide to import to Europe and not America del Norte or Asia hmm. well um, I was I was studying in, in Europe so and I really like Europe, so I, I just I decided to stay around there, and uh, Berlin made sense. Uh, you know, as a cultural capital, it was very nice to live there, and Germany is doing well, and you know the rules are clear, and it's I think it's a it's a good place to be. That's that's a very nice answer as a as a European uh, or former European. That's, that's a great answer. <laughs> uh, do, do you miss it? I do. You know, I, the first two years I was so homesick and, and I just love Europe. Europe is, you know, is, is the old land for me, you know, so, and I'm very, I'm, I'm a big local patriot. So I really believe in my town, which is, you know, in Slovakia, it's a very poor town, but I still really believe in it. And I've loved the history and everything. So, you know, for me, it's important that my Slovak company is actually in Komarno, which is the town. Okay. So, yeah, I, I do miss nice. it. Yeah. Okay, so coming back to your uh, farm and and uh, the coffees you bring in. So how, how do how do these uh, because some of them are as we said from your family. So how how do these coffees differ? You know, uh, they are probably from very close region, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, why one tastes differently than the other one? Okay, um, I guess like. But one of the most important things would be um, ripeness and then um, variety, mm-hmm. altitude. Uh, I mean, these, these are kind of common things, but um, I mean, the, definitely the profile will change depending on how well you pick it. So that's, uh, that's the most important thing. And then for me, it's, uh, it's very interesting to go searching for varieties. Yes, a lot um, it's like, for example, like this uh, Kenya variety of El Salvador that it's kind of confusing with that name, but uh, it's got such a such an interesting profile. Like it, it cups way higher than coffee's growing next to it. That I, I mean, just finding stuff like that, and then the processing. You know, if you're doing good processing, you're going to have a very different wash from a honey, from a natural. So you can always like create different profiles at the mill, even if it's the same coffee. And then there's also always like the story behind the coffee. It's interesting. Uh, what do you think would be the most important determinant of the flavor of the coffee? Is it the process? Is it the variety? Is it the place where it was grown? Um. I would say ripeness. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I mean, if you if you pick too early, it's going to have this really frontal acidity, kind of like you know, if you have ever had like a green unripe mango. Mm-hmm. So so it's very interesting how even though it's a seed, um, the flavor evolution throughout the season changes like like a fruit. 
like fruit ripeness gets transmitted into the seed. So if you start picking early, you know, when it's still a bit yellowish red, you have this really frontal acidity, very astringent. And as the season progresses, you're going to have a more juicy, rounded acidity, um, better flavors. And then, you know, if you're picking a bit too late, it's that whiny, overripe flavor. Which is, so, which is looked for nowadays, right? Some people do want that whiny kind of flavor, the kind of funky, they call it the funky flavor. Yeah, funky naturals. <laughs> yeah, funky. I mean, there, yeah, there's a, it, it's interesting when, when you send samples and you send the same samples to different people and they choose different coffees. It's all very subjective. It is. And, you know, I, for example, I said it before that I know what our customers like and they go for this wildness, this craziness. Personally, it's not my preference. I do love naturals. Don't, mm -hmm. don't uh, misunderstand me. But it's not a coffee which I want to drink every day. Mm -hmm. But I also realize that a lot of people, like consumers who buy specialty coffees, especially these high-grade specialty coffees, they are in it for this unique, crazy experience. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, well, uh, with that, like, um, I mean, I, I definitely notice that naturals are, are like an easy sell. Because uh, from like the normal experience of a, of a coffee drinker and then you try a natural and it's like, whoa, what's all this aroma and mm -hmm. all this stuff. But then um, like coffee connoisseurs, I noticed that they really, they go for the washed coffees. Well, this was washed. Just yeah, to make, definitely. Because it's Kenya, Kenyan. Kenyan yeah, washed. Yeah, yeah. it's washed. Although I had once uh, a natural Kenya. <laughs> it was horrible. Mm. It, was, it was so bad. But I think that it was kind of like... Uh, badly processed or something it was okay. it was really bad i remember that on the uh, the coffees.me a facebook group you had discussion with jean uh, about you know jean said that a good coffee importer buys all the lots not only the the specialty grade but he makes sure that the farmer can sell also the the commercial grade lots mm -hmm. so how about you uh what do you do um, obviously you buy the nice coffees because uh you know, we tried some of yours and they were kind of all like high-grade, specialty-grade coffees. But what do you do with the rest? What do you do with the lower-grade specialty coffees, perhaps with coffees which fall under 80 points and they become a commercial grade? Um, honestly, I, I haven't really gotten involved with those type of coffees. <laughs> um, and it's sort of, it's, it's a thing of, uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, seeing my father worried about the commodity market price every single day. You know, he's all, always being very, oh, it dropped a little, oh, it went up a little. And, and it just seemed like a very stressful world. So I, I just wanted to skip all that. And I thought, you know, I, I don't even want to know what the commodity price is. If we're growing great coffees, it has its own value. And it doesn't matter what some trader, you know, in some other country is saying. So it was kind of like a way for me to step step away from that and just kind of go into the specialty world. And then you can take a step back because then, then you start seeing, okay, maybe uh, mid-elevation coffees, um, they're not good enough to be these great micro lots, but maybe let's say I can do a honey process and it could go into an espresso blend. So you can start treating even lower quality coffees as a sort of specialty and finding, let's say, like a big roaster that would be interested in, in a blended coffee. How much would a coffee farmer get if he would sell it, let's say, to an ordinary coffee importer? And how much he would get if he sell it uh, to, a, let's say, a company, which is a roaster but comes to El Salvador and buys direct trade? And how much mm -hmm. they would get it when they sell it directly through you in Europe? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I guess, I guess it works differently in every country. Uh, the traditional way in El Salvador was that there were uh, big mills that took care of everything. So they had wet mill, dry mill operations, and they were the exporters. So um, And banks would not uh, really lend to farmers. So the mill would become kind of like a bank and the mill would finance a farmer's production. 
And then, you know, the farmer had an agreement that he would uh, give his cherry to that miller. And I guess, uh, like in the traditional way, that's where it would end for most farmers. And uh, so you have the commodity price, and then the big mills of El Salvador uh, set their, you know, they make their calculations and they set their price for cherry. And all the other mills kind of follow what the big mills have priced. And then you have um, bonuses, let's say for high altitude, or let's say a mill can have um, like a bonus for picking only ripe cherry, stuff like that. And it's only in recent years where we're looking for very specific coffees of a certain altitude, a certain variety, that you kind of go in and you make a deal with the farmer directly that it doesn't matter what the commodity price is, you, you value his work, so you're going to offer him a certain price. But then uh, what, what's happening now, it's what's happened probably in Costa Rica earlier, is that a lot of farmers are learning to process their, their own coffee. So they take their coffee up to parchment. Now, having a dry mill is very expensive. You need a lot of machinery. So if you're like a small producer, the best thing you can do is maybe get a little depulping machine and have some raised beds. And, you know, you can take your coffee to parchment and then you start learning about quality so you know that your, your beans are worth something. Uh, so how do you learn about the quality? You learn to cup, I guess, right? Um, yeah, I think, um, let's say, for example, El Salvador, um, any farmer can go to the El Salvador's Coffee Institute and, you know, start getting involved in cupping his own coffees there. If you don't have access to a private lab, I guess that, that would be the way. But, you know, just being curious and wanting to know what you're producing, start cupping it. And I guess that, that would be the way. Cool. So going back to Europe, uh, how, do you, how do you see the European coffee scene? And did you have a chance to uh, get the feel of a different, I would call them the coffee philosophies? You know, I mean, by the coffee philosophies, I mean, you know, the Italian espresso thing and the specialty grade thing and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, different kind of uh, coffee approaches, I would say, in Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I mean, there, there's definitely like the Scandinavian philosophy that predominates and a lot of people are trying to follow that trend and some people do it well, some people don't do it so well. Um, I, I think Europe is very exciting because um, there's a lot of like really passionate roasters who are doing it more for a passion than as a business. So you kind of like, you know, like a coffee tour or something like a really passionate coffee chef who's there with his roasting machine he's trying to get the best coffees I, I think there's a, a lot of people like that that definitely make it interesting um, I, don't, I don't really know what else to say about that I've, I I haven't really traveled to other areas that much but I get a sense that in other places it's more about big roasting companies trying to do business well you know i think that europe is the same we you know i always say that specialty coffee is very loud because of our passion we like to talk about it we like to put it into you know on the on the facebook on, on different social media so it's it's visible but i do not think that business wise it's the majority actually i think that it's a it's a, a giant minority you know yeah probably, it's definitely, yeah we yeah. have probably a very small market share i think for Central Europe, I can talk for Central Europe, uh, the Italian espresso companies have the majority um, mm -hmm. and they own it. They basically own it because they have this model where they give you espresso maker and uh, you are you basically have to sign a contract with them. So I don't know, you have to take, I don't know, 10 kilos of coffee or whatever. I don't know the exact numbers per month. And for that, you get espresso maker. And a lot of uh, cafes, you know, they live with this opportunity because they go like, oh, okay, I can get free espresso maker, you know. And I'm like, I honestly, I, I kind of a bit think that thanks to this model, we're making our cafes kind of uh, uh, very monotone and kind of uh, uh, dumbing them down, I would say. We make them dumb. But, yeah. 
So, you know, I, I love this new scene. As you, you call it uh, Scandinavian, I guess British guys will get a bit offended on that. Because uh, I think it's, uh, well, some people call it third wave, whatever, whatever you call it. But uh, yeah, it's, I like this because, and as I said, it sparked uh, my coffee passion again. Because you, as you said, that we are coffee chefs and you on your level, you work with varieties, with processing, with, you know, uh, growing it properly, harvesting it properly on our end. We uh, take that and we find the right roast profiles. And then there is a barista or consumer who prepares that coffee and plays with the preparation. So it, it makes this very exciting chain of, of that coffee. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, in Europe, it's, it's still, I think, the minority. You know. Yeah. And going back to that uh, about Italy, it's definitely it, it, it's funny to see how, how things work there. Like. Because it's it's like they supply everything, no? It's like it's not only the grinder and the machine, like the roaster is basically like your appliance supplier. Like they'll offer you a fridge and whatever yeah. and like lock you in and then they can just sell you really cheap coffee. And it's um yeah, I kinda I ran into some walls like because I was living I was living in Italy before Berlin and you know, sometimes I would visit roasters. And, you know, they, they just like they had no idea what they were roasting. It's kind of like, oh, you know, this blend of eight different coffees. And you're like, so, so where is it from? Uh, America, Africa. And it's, uh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. And I agree with you. And, and this other thing, like when, you know, when uh, some cafes writers, you know, inquiries and they say, oh, do you, are you going to give us an espresso maker? I said, look, I'm making amazing coffee. I do not do espresso makers. I do not service espresso makers. That's a different craft. That's a different skill. What mm-hmm. I do, I make coffee, but I make it the best I can because all my time I spend on making this coffee awesome. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to fix your espresso maker because that's not what <laughs> I do. You know, yeah. I'm not going to maintain it. I mean, there are companies which do that and they do an amazing job. So mm-hmm. that, you know, and <laughs> we actually had on our website for a while uh, a sentence which said that if you are interested in, in fridges, umbrellas and other tacky things, we are not your, uh, uh, we are yeah. not your company. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of removed it because people thought that it's kind of uh, rude. But I was like, OK, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. hey. <laughs> yeah. we, we avoided these companies who want free espresso makers and you know i can get it you know you are doing a startup you are trying to save money but on the other hand how are you going to differentiate yourself when the cafe next to you the cafe next to you the restaurant next to you has the same coffee because that brand gives you espresso maker you know yeah. why, why would a consumer pick you yeah def- definitely a good point I, I guess like i guess what you could take from that is uh I guess like supply, supplying a grinder wouldn't be a bad idea if someone is like using like one of these cheap coffees and you're like, hey, why don't you give our coffee a try? Like, here's a mm-hmm. grinder. I guess like just that little bit of it would make sense. You can't do that. You can't do that when with these contracts. They, they have great, these uh, companies have great contracts and mm-hmm. well, great in quotation marks. We try to uh, get into that exactly with the grinders. And we said, we don't want to do espresso. We want to do pour overs because Slovakia is very heavily espresso culture. And mm-hmm. when we started, the, all the coffees uh, done through, you know, Hario or, or Chemex or Aeropress, they're all like, people laughed about that. They were like, oh, you know, that never picks up. And we said, okay, fine. Let us do that. You know, let's just get into these cafes with our, you know, like uh, coffee intended for, for pour overs. Or filter coffee they mm. said no no you cannot do that we we're going to violate the contract so yeah they, they definitely lock them in huh? mm-hmm. yeah and it's very hard you know it's really hard because you know people a lot of cafes did realize that oh this you know this company is something new and doing something new means that i can differentiate myself so they mm. wanted to go with us but they were locked with a contract. Some of them actually bought different espresso makers and they started to buy our coffee or, you know, buying some similar brand, which is, you know, uh, in Slovakia, which does not provide espresso makers. But some of them, they still kind of like, they're locked in because, you know, buying espresso maker is not that cheap, you know, so. Yeah. And how, how long are these contracts? I think until you take the coffee from them. So you basically have to return the espresso maker and uh, start, mm. your, you know, selling your own stuff. Like espresso maker and, and grinder and, you have to, you probably have some. Yeah, uh, basically come and take 
all your chairs and everything away. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, yeah, that's, well, that's why I call them slaves. You know, I, I interviewed uh, uh, Mike uh, in the past three episodes and I, I call them slaves of these companies because you cannot sell your own. I mean, I think that having a liberty to change the brand is amazing or even sell different brands of coffee mm-hmm. is amazing because even we can screw up. Imagine that in six months uh, I go nuts and I decide to sell very cheap coffee as very expensive. I'm sure that cafes will notice that and they go like, oh, okay, I don't want this. You know, I, I want for my customers the best. But if I lock mm-hmm. them in in contract, I mean, what can you do? Right. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. said that, you know, these uh, Italian uh Companies sell cheap coffee, but I have to say that they sell it for a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so they charge exactly this, almost exactly the same what we charge for specialty grade coffee. And you have to realize that there is no such a thing as free espresso makers. Those espresso makers do not fall down from the skies. <laughs> they have to buy them, you know. So and you are going to pay the price, you know. Do you have a favorite European roastery or company so far which you know you met the guys and you are kind of like oh these are really cool they do an amazing job hmm. um hmm. That, that's kind of hard to answer because um i don't know there, there's a lot of great roasters and um i like different things about uh different companies and some of them i really consider like my friends so it's kind of like hanging out with friends when i visit them um let me let me see. I think uh, in, in terms of uh, like their purchasing policy and how everything functions, uh, I think working with Coffee Collective is is definitely um, one of my favorite ways of working because um, you know their whole policy is direct trade, and you can access the information of their lots and everything. So it, it just feels like like a you know, if the whole coffee world would be like them, then there would be a lot less problems and farmers would be better off. But they, but they sell uh, green coffee, right? Uh, I, I don't think they, they sell green coffee. Okay, so it's... Uh, sorry, I don't know Coffee Collective, so... Uh, okay, uh, they're a roastery in, um, in Copenhagen. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So, uh, so they do, you know, they, they just work with a few different producers in the world and um, it's all direct trade. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so we have uh, very clear guidelines with them. Um, so for example, um, I kind of broke it down with them that it would be 60% uh, of the of what they pay goes directly to the farmer for their cherry. Um, 10% is for wet milling, 10% is for dry milling. And uh, Ten percent for sourcing, finding these coffees, and ten percent for like handling all the all the logistic. So it was kind of like you know a simple way of breaking it down, but it, it's a very clear uh, way of working, and you know it leaves no room for speculation, and it guarantees that the farmer is getting like paid really well for for his cherry. Cool. How do your uh, family, or how do your farmers uh, like the idea that the coffee is in Europe? Do they follow it somehow? You know, do, do they check out the websites of the uh, roasters they sell their coffees? Um, I, I guess I guess it varies a lot because um, you know you, you have some people that get really excited, and then um, you know when the roaster, if the roaster comes and visit us, you know some of them bring back like a bag of the coffee. And then the farmer gets all excited. He's got like a bag with his name on it. So like to see that is, is definitely very cool. But uh, you also have to think that, you know, a lot of like small holder farmers, um, they, lo- they live up in a volcano. Maybe they've never been online. And um, like a thing that's difficult is, um, you know, getting trust from people. Because um, let's say like a thing I do is that, I can pay a base price that, um, you know, it's already like a higher price than normal. And then when it cups uh, really well, I can give them a bonus for quality. But a lot of farmers, um, you know, they, they just want to get paid immediately. And, you know, it's just about 
getting paid and, and earning a living. And, you know, some people are not really interested in, in what happens after, and some people are really interested. I guess, uh, yeah, uh, like on this point, this is what kind of got me started uh, doing direct trade. Um, because uh, when I started producing coffees, I was selling to importing companies. Um, and then, you know, they come, they buy the coffee from you, and they, they don't ever, you don't ever hear again what, what happened to the coffee. So, you know, so I was curious, like, okay, I, you know, I, I did this tipica and I made it a honey process. I want to know what the roaster thought. Like, should, should I, you know, should next year, should I make it a wash? Should I make it a natural? What should I do? You know, and there's uh, very little feedback coming back. So I guess that, you know, that's what pushed me to skip the importers and go directly to the roasters. I think that's it. You know, I, I love this, uh, this model because... Obviously, roasters cannot tell you, like, what should you plant or what should you, how should you process the coffee, but they can tell you feedback, what they liked, uh, you know, uh, what do the, what the customers liked, and you have an idea how to kind of, like, uh, adjust the whole thing. I remember when we uh, bought uh, El Salvadorian lot from uh, Angel Barrera. He works for an importer called Belco in France, mm -hmm. and his yeah. dad has a farm in El Salvador. Uh, that was fun because through Angel we could reach to his dad because his dad has a farm in, in El Salvador. And uh, we sent him a T-shirt and uh, we sent him some coffee in a packaging. And he made a picture of himself with his Jeep and our T-shirt. <laughs> it was really <laughs> awesome, you know. It's, so yeah. for a roaster, it's, it's kind of cool that we cannot really do direct trade because we are very small. But on the other hand, we can have this relation with a farmer, you know, mm. and... Uh, again, that's why I like your model, you know, so you actually provide that relation uh, to the former. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, um, I mean, it, it's definitely going to keep happening more because, uh, okay, until now, I guess direct trade has been big roasters that are able to come to the producing country and buy a, a lot of coffee that's, you know, worth enough for them to send it in their own container. Um but now, you know, I guess like more people like me will start, you know, bringing the coffee to the roaster. Um, this is a very good point what you said. Would you recommend it to other uh, mills or let's say bigger farms to bring it in Europe directly? Um, I, I would say definitely. Uh, it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stuff to figure out, and you know, it can it can go badly if you have a lot of coffee sitting there that that you don't sell. Um, but I would, I would definitely say so because, I mean, it, you know, it doesn't make sense. Like, I guess importers serve a purpose, but, you know, sometimes you wonder like this company is from who knows what country and like, why are they the ones like representing Central American coffee? You know, and you just think, uh, we, we can do that. You know, we go through all this trouble growing the coffee, harvesting the coffee, processing the coffee, and then we put it in a container to see it disappear. I mean, you know, all, all that's left is getting a warehouse in the destination and, you know, sending out samples. So that's not that complicated. And definitely, I think more people will start doing it. Okay, so it's, if it's not so complicated, what are the main steps you have to do? and uh, what they should uh, make sure that they don't screw up in these steps. Okay. Um, well, I guess like the, the main point would be financing. Mm. That uh, you definitely, you have to wait a few more months in order to, you know, get paid. So I, I guess that puts a limit on a lot of people doing this. And, uh, but then, you know, it's, uh, it's all about finding, finding a warehouse, uh, that you can trust and working with them. And then, you know, you, you, you do the same thing you would be doing in a producing country, sending out samples, only that instead of sending samples to importers, you're sending out samples to, to roasters. So it's, uh, you know, it's more work because, uh, instead of selling a full container to an importer, you're selling a few bags here, a few bags there, but you know it's just a bit more paperwork. If if somebody decides that 
he or she wants to do this, that, you know, from their farm or mill, they go directly to Europe or United States, what would be the motivator? How much more they can get? Is it double, triple, or, you know, uh, why, why would they do it? Okay. Um, well, you can definitely earn a little bit more by, you know, skipping the importer's cut. Um, but, you know, like for me as well, it was uh, partly like recognition and just uh, feeling that, that you're involved. You know, because uh, let's say like, okay, I was producing, I was making a big effort to produce coffees and, uh, and then the importers would take it. And, you know, I, I would write something about each farm and take photos. And, you know, then I would be browsing and I would go into a roaster's website and I would see, like, the text I had written and the photos I had made, but they had no idea that that coffee was coming from me. So that, that definitely felt a bit strange. And so the first, the first direct trade I made was actually... Um, like uh, Rubens Cardelli, when he was starting out, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he had a cafe with his mom and he had just built uh, his own roasting machine. He was really excited. A common friend put us together and, uh, you know, I sent him some coffee and he won the, the Italian Brewers Cup. And then, um, you know, he tested a few other coffees and he decided to also use my coffee in the in the world brewers and uh he placed second in the world brewers so it was like whoa you know my, my first uh direct trade and this happens so you, you you know you definitely get very excited and um yeah so i think that that's a great motivator because for me it's i want to be involved mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that i want to be serving people espresso every day, but, but I definitely, you know, I want to talk to people about it, hear what they think, uh, you know, see our coffees get recognized. So for you, it's a legacy thing. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, just, just feeling like you're participating. So when it comes to selecting the different coffees, uh, what are your main criteria? You know, how, which coffees do you select for the European market? Um, Basically, it's uh, the coffees I like. Um, you know, I, I also, um, I don't like reducing a coffee to, to a cupping score. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I don't know, I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's necessary as an industry to have a common language and a way of analyzing coffees. But uh, I don't like, you know, reducing a coffee to a number. So I'm definitely not you know it's it's more instinctual i guess oh, okay like, um you know i i i want to visit the farm i want to meet the farmer um you know and if i find a really interesting variety or some something unique about that farm then i i get more into it and if it cups great then excellent you know i basically i i want to work with friends and um, people who are making an effort to produce great coffee and if I like it, I, I like it. Great. That's 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 a great input. Uh, I, I love your uh, sentence that I don't want to reduce the coffee to a score. Because, you know, this, this is a thing that when you score coffee, when you fill out that cupping form, you are scoring different elements of that coffee, right? And mm-hmm. let's say one of them is acidity and one of them is aftertaste or body. And if you if the body is great or acidity is great, but you don't like that kind of acidity because mm-hmm. there are different types of acidity, that coffee might be not for you, even though it's scored 92 points, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, yeah, so the, I, I totally, I mean, the, the cupping score is a technical term for, you know, uh, uh, for for professionals, but I don't think that's very good information for a consumer, you know, how that coffee will taste like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I agree with I- you there, yeah. During your uh, trip in Europe uh, and during your sales, how did you feel about certificates? What do you think? Do European uh, coffee roasters care about you know certificates like fair trade, organic, oats? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I definitely feel that in the last few years, more and more people are realizing that fair trade 
isn't really that fair. And um, I guess, you know, the, the more people realize that, um, it's going to mm-hmm. fade a bit. But, uh, the, you know, in big industry terms, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's a huge market. And I, I think, you know, it's an easy sell. I see a lot of issues with it. Uh, we, we could go into it if you want. or No, it, you, know, you know, go ahead. I mean, I'm curious about your opinion about, let's say, fair trade. That's cool. Uh, let, let's do that. And then, then we can talk about uh, the business aspect of that certificate. Okay. Well, um, well that, you know, if, if you want to be fair trade, uh, I guess one of the requirements is that you are part of a co-op. Mm-hmm. You know, and co-ops uh, can have a lot of issues. You know, um, you know, some co-ops are great and they really take care of the farmers, but other co-ops, you know, the people in the board of directors keep a lot of the money. They give themselves, you know, a nice salary if they're the managers of the co-op, and not all the money that should go to the farmer gets back to the farmer. So, and I always. Um, you know, I kind of like I'm following, I'm trying to follow my own path and I like people who follow their own path. So when you meet like a, like a small producer who's doing everything on his own in their farm, you know, you want, you want to work with them and, you know, they could not sell their coffee as fair trade because they're not part of a Mm co-op. So, I mean, that, that's definitely like a, a big restriction I see. And then in terms of, um, of other certificates, um, I remember like back in the 90s, for example, the Rainforest Alliance mm-hmm. certificate was, uh, was a kind of popular here in El Salvador. But then you would see that you, know, you have to go through all this process um, to get the certificate. And it's already, you know, the commodity market is putting a big pressure, downward pressure on what the producer will earn. And it's, you know, it's coming from outside. And then you have to also give some of your money to another outside organization. You know, so you, you would see a lot of people going for certificates in the 90s and then kind of taking a step back and not going through all the trouble anymore. So, I mean, now, now that the specialty market is more developed, it's all about cupping score, you know, cup quality. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, you know, that's, that's a more interesting way than, you know, as a producer having to, like, pay all this money to get some certificate. That, that's a very interesting point, what you just said, that paying that money uh, for the certificate, because these companies are not non-profits or some yeah. friendly organization. I mean, not, not non-profit organizations or NGOs, that these guys are actually businesses. Mm-hmm. So they live from the certificate you know, the fact that they, you have to pay for the certificate gives you a competitive, theoretically, gives you a, te- a competitive advantage so you can sell your coffee a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But it's not, as you said, it's not, not always the case, and especially not with specialty grade, where really the cup determines the, the, the price. Yeah, and then if, you know, if you're a small farmer, um, it's not cost-effective to go through all those expenses to get certified for a small amount of coffee as well. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting to see like more like certificates coming from the producing country, maybe organized through like the national coffee organization. I, I think that that would be a more interesting move, but I, I haven't really seen a lot of that being developed. Kind of like uh, I guess like how in wine you have like regional um, certificates and stuff like that. I think in Brazil they have a certificate uh, which is uh, regional, mm-hmm. and because we b- buy a lot of Brazil for espresso, especially, and we buy Dateras, and they have I forgot the name of that, but it's a it's a local, and I think it's issued by the local um, university, you know, of agriculture or something like that, which which is you know, the problem with that is that nobody knows about it. On, mm-hmm. on, a, on a world scale, you know, like the consumer don't know about that, about that certificate. I mean, even I have problems to recall what exactly it is. But I honestly, personally, I don't really care about these certificates. And for the same reasons, as you said, you know, that they they do not work really on, on a specialty grade. And, you know, all these certificates do not guarantee the quality. They guarantee certain 
uh, growth style, a certain management style, right? They don't mm-hmm. guarantee the quality of that coffee. That's so, fine. Yeah, so for me, they are kind of useless. <laughs> but I'm, I was curious about your opinion. And, you know, I'm also always curious to see if consumers care about these. Because, for example, for a while, we bought coffee and maybe it had a certificate, but we didn't buy it because of that. We bought it because we liked the coffee. And mm-hmm. we were kind of like, shall we put it on a website? Or, you know, is it in some information which is important for our customers? I know in the United States, people do care sometimes. They do want to see the organic or the the fair trade, even though, you know, as you said, mm-hmm. fair trade is like, you know, probably outdone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so well, how is I it mean, in Europe? What's your experience? Do you think an European consumer do do they care about these uh, labels on their coffee? Uh, def- definitely, I, especially organic. Uh, like how you like Germany has, um, you know, it's hugely developed. Like the whole organic market, how you have um, whole supermarket chains that, that all the products are certified organic. And I mean, I think that one is definitely a good one because um, you know we, we're definitely becoming way too petrochemical in our agriculture and um, organic certification and consumers becoming aware of that is definitely a good move. Um, it's a, it, But in, in the same, uh, looking at it from another way, as a producer, it's, it's very difficult to produce, um, you know, organic certified coffee because uh, first of all, like, you know, unless you're like super, you're really into like the agronomy, like n- understanding uh, nutrients and soil balances. Uh, it's it's going to be very tough to keep your, your production levels. And especially when you get hit by leaf rust. Oh, yeah. You guys uh, had a horrible leaf rust there, huh? Yeah. And people, you know, they just need the, the quick solution and, and spray their plants. And it's unfortunate, but um, that's kind of how, how it's done. Now you have this amazing model where you are bringing the coffees in. Is this the future? Is this which takes over after fair trade and basically direct trade? Is is this the next thing? Um, I think so. I think um, every everyone is on Facebook now, or you can find people, email them. So all these uh, direct connections are just gonna keep happening more and more. Um, I mean, um, there's a few different people already doing it, and I always hear of other people um, becoming curious and wanting to do it as well. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you liked Rodolfo's story so much as much as I did. And if you have questions for him, join our coffees.me Facebook group and you can ask, just tag him and I'm sure he will be happy to answer. And you know what? Not only that, but in the next episode, he actually going to answer your questions you asked before I recorded this episode. So I hope you will stay with us. Have a great one. Talk to you soon. Bye.